Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Redeemer Church this morning. Whether you've been here many times or this is your first time, we warmly welcome you. Our church exists because before Jesus ascended, he said, we should make disciples of all nations in order to bring glory to our God. And then he goes on to explain how that's going to happen. First, he says it will happen through teaching people to obey everything that God has commanded. And so here we are this morning. You'll notice in our worship service, we spent a lot of time in the Word of God. The other thing Jesus said was that we should baptize people, and that's bringing folks into the community of the church. And so if you're here for the first time this morning and you're interested to know more about our church, you can text that number that is in the screen behind me. Also next Sunday morning after the service, there's an open house at Dick and Janet Champ's home. And if you don't know them, they are right there. I'm going to ask them to stand up, of course, because that's what I do. <laughs> you may sit down. After the service, just go to them. They're open spots. Just say, I'd love to meet other people in our church, uh, in this church, and they will um, have a warm welcome for you. Also, if you're brand new here and you'd love to have coffee with one of the pastors, I'll also be present after the service along with Pastor Jonathan. Just come up and say, I'd love to have some coffee. There is one other announcement that did not make it into the bulletin, and that is next week on the 9th, I guess that's this week, on the 9th of February, the high school youth group will go, bl go blitzing bowling, whatever that is. I know it's bowling. I'm not sure what the blitzing part is. If you're interested in that, see the Heisingas. Where are the Heisingas? Right there. Not going to make them stand. Their hands went way up. So if you're a high school student and you don't know what uh, that involves, please see them. Otherwise, we have a very full Sunday this morning. We're glad he to be here. Let's begin by bowing our hearts in prayer. Just as God created you and you're alive this morning, this God now calls you to worship him. And the words that we use as that call to worship are from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you stand with me, please, as we begin our worship with these songs, Here I Am to Worship and a Worship the King.
Let's pray. Our Father, there's a great contrast that we experience throughout our lives, that we are limited, limited in our ability to do the things that we really would desire. Maybe there are things that happen in our homes or at work or just in the world as a whole. We really want the power to bring the things that we want to bring to pass, and yet we lack that power. But when we come here in worship and we sing songs like we have just sung, that we are weak and frail, feeble as dust, but you are God over all. There's no God like you. In this time of worship, we see reality in a clearer way than we might at any other point in life. Because we see the contrast between the greatness of our God and the frailty of who we are as human beings. And that draws us to the mercy of our Savior Jesus who is our intercessor between this God who is great and holy and us as people who are weak and sinful. And so we give you highest praise today for the mercy that you have shown in Jesus Christ. And we worship you in his precious name. Amen.
You can be seated and catch your breath after that. What a glorious, amazing song. As you might have seen, it's taken from the words of Psalm 150 that call us to worship the God of the universe. In our order of worship, we now turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. And there's a reason why we read these passages on Sundays, and it's because in the rhythm of the human life, as well as the grand scope of redemption, we have creation and fall and redemption. And we live that out every Sunday morning in worship. The God of creation calls us to worship. We sing his praise, just like we did. And then we also must see our sin. And this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, we're reading about the relationships in the home, husbands and wives specifically. Whether you are married this morning, you are not, you can find in these words application to the relationships in your, in your life. But if you are married as a husband or wife, Paul makes special application to what it means to be godly in this way. He says, "Husband or wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This morning when I got up, I'm reading through the book of Leviticus. I'd commend it to you, even if it requires persistence. And in chapter 11, the book of Leviticus records the laws of holiness, especially when it comes to what the Old Testament people were called and not called to eat. So you can't eat a camel but you can eat a cow. And at the very end of that chapter, the Lord says, and be holy as I am holy. And Peter picks that up in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we also find that language here in Ephesians chapter 5, specifically in regard to a husband's call to sanctify his wife. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to give you a particular challenge this morning if you are a husband relative to your wife, but of course this applies across the scope to any human relationship. When your children are very young and they try to deceive you, it's almost comical in the ways they attempt and fail. I did the dishes, Mom, and you can see the pile of dishes behind them still in the sink. As adults, we grow up and we think we're more clever and we're really not. Often we also are deceptive in our relationships with each other, especially in our marriages, and we think we're more clever than we actually are. We think our spouse doesn't really understand what that tone of voice means when we say it. It's okay to smile because you've done it. I have too. And what the Lord is calling you to this morning is genuine repentance in the deepest places 
where we've rebelled against him and not demonstrated that holiness, especially in marriage. And I want to give you one further challenge, that in those relationships that are closest to you, you confess that before the Lord this morning, but you also confess that to your husband or wife or your friend, whoever you think, I'm clever enough they don't know what I'm really thinking in the moment. The Lord does, of course, and they probably are a lot more perceptive to what is going on in your heart than you actually think is true. So I'm calling you this morning by this word of the God to repent. We're going to bow in a prayer of repentance, first giving you time to pray silently, and then I'll close our time of repentance in a prayer together. Let's bow and pray. Father, you as a God of all perceive things as they truly are. And where we have attempted to deceive others in the closest of relationships, we pray first for your forgiveness, that we would truly be honest with each other and not try to cover our sin in a way that you already know. And we pray for that spirit also in relationship with each other, whether it's, as Paul says, in our marriages or whether it's other relationships that we have that instead of being deceptive instead of hiding ourselves and thinking that we don't owe it to the other to be as kind as you have been with us Lord that you bring us to repentance for that and instead of being a people who deceive and try to cover up instead you would make us as honest as our Lord would call us to when he says be holy as I am holy Father, forgive us when we are not, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But the Lord doesn't leave us in the place where he just identifies our sin. He also forgives us. This morning I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Hear these words that the Lord said to the ancient Israelites. He said, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There are two notes there about what it means to be forgiven. First, it means he takes away the grief that comes with that. Eventually, that will be true. And the ways that you have sinned and you feel your own grief, the ways in which you've been sinned against and that grief remains, there's coming a day when that will all be taken away. But he also removes the reproach. That is the sense of isolation that we have. The distance we have from God. The distance we have from other people. In Jesus Christ, he brings us near. And in the words of the gospel, I also say to you this morning, you have no fear to stand before your God this morning. If you have repented, he has forgiven you. And you can enter into this worship with fullest joy. This morning, you'll notice in the order of worship, we're receiving new members. And if you are one of those who's being received this morning, if you can come up to the front and join me up here. Just come up, please.
I have a little bit to say while they are coming up. When I began our worship service and I said, our goal as a church, our existence is to make disciples. Part of that process of disciple making involves commitments before God and to each other to help each other grow in our following of our Savior. And so we are delighted this morning that these have joined us. We're waiting for one more. There we go. I should also note that if you looked in your bulletin, you'll notice there is one family that's not here, and that's the Seals. Michael and Katie and their children, if you have small children, you will appreciate that the last two times they've been scheduled to be received as members, in Michael's words, they've become violently ill. I don't think it has anything to do with joining this church as much as it has when you have a number of small children, the viruses go around. So eventually the SEALs will also join. With me this morning up here at front is Claris Lorup, as well as Lauren and Heidi Cabe with their children Milo, Everett, Greta, and Sterling. And then the O'Brocks, John and Rachel and Kurt. And on my note here, it simply says, and baby number two who's overdue, I think it's worth noting that their son Jack was born this week which is truly remarkable. We enter into covenant with each other before God based on promises that we make. And there are five promises that are found in our membership vows. And I would just alert you to the fact that many others of you have asked about membership in our church. Just note this, beginning next Sunday in this room, following our worship service, we're going to start that membership process. And that includes a class. All these folks have taken that class and included at the end of that class were these five questions that they already affirmed. I'm going to ask you these questions, and if you agree, just say, I do. Do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? What do you say? Second, do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are in the same being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh? What do you say? Third, do you confess that because of your sinfulness you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin? And that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone. Fourth, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, that you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? And finally, do you promise to participate fully in this church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, to heed its discipline, even in cases where you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life? What do you say? Praise the Lord.
Since we have some small children up here, I'm not going to make them stand up here while I do the rest. But I want you to note this as a congregation. When these folks were baptized, the whole congregation committed itself to receive them as members of the church. As these folks are now received into full communion in this body, you as a congregation are reminded of the same obligations. For in Christ we are members of one another. And Christ claims these brothers and sisters as his own and calls each one of you to receive them in love and commitment. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist them as they grow in Christ by godly example, by friendship, by encouragement in our most precious faith and in the fellowship of believers. I'd like to pray for them uh, before we sing. Would you bow in prayer? Our Father, it is a beautiful thing to hear these words, the confession that I believe in Jesus Christ, that I recognize I am a sinner and there is no hope for me except in our Savior Jesus, that we recognize that our sin keeps us far from our Creator, if it were not for the grace that comes in our Savior. That we also acknowledge Jesus as our sovereign Lord, that in every part of our life, from work in the church, to our parenting at home, to our friendships, to our work, we see that Jesus Christ is calling us to follow him in obedience. And Father, we also are grateful to hear these words of commitment to participate in the life of this church. And even in cases where that's difficult, where there's what is described as delinquency, falling short in doctrine or life, we together are committed to help each other grow by warning, by encouraging, and sometimes even saying the most difficult things to each other because we desire that Christ will be honored and that we would keep a brother or sister from turning away from the Lord. And so I pray this morning for each one of those who has taken these vows, for Clarice, for Lauren and Heidi, and for John and Rachel, Lord, would your spirit rest upon them. Give them joy in their participation in this church. And Father, may we also love them as you have loved us. That the words that the Apostle Paul says, welcome each other as God in Christ has welcomed you, would be precisely what we experience. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to sing, It is well with my soul.
please remain standing for our prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to express our true thankfulness to you. Thank you for the sunshine and the joy this brings to our hearts. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather here without fear. Thank you that you are a God of truth and have preserved throughout time your word that we may be fed by it this morning. Lord, your word urges us to be thankful in all situations. And on one hand, this should be easy for us, for we are truly a blessed people. But on the other hand, Lord, there are many of us here who are struggling, struggling with financial hardship or sickness or loneliness or besetting sin. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Holy Spirit to be with us, reminding us of your promises and comforting us and showing us when our thoughts need to turn from ourselves and to you instead. Lord, we thank you most of all for your son and the self, selfless work he did on the cross so that we can now say with heads lifted high, my sin, oh, the bliss, that glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Be with Pastor Lord now as he brings us your word. Give him clarity of mind and speech and be with the offering that we take. May we be cheerful givers back to you of a portion you have given us. Bless the deacons as they steward these gifts, Lord. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning. We worship a prayer-answering God. There are countless ways in Scripture and in our lives that He has demonstrated that He loves us. So let us go with confidence by the power of His Spirit before the throne of grace and intercede for those who have asked for prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You know us. You know our hearts. You know our lives. You know our burdens. And you know every need that we have. Thank you that we can come to you, our God, who is full of compassion and kindness. And what greater kindness, Lord, than to, by your design, enable us as your creatures to have children. Lord, we rejoice with the O'Brock family. Thank you for the wonderful gift that Jack is to their family. Thank you that their family is a gift to our church as they joined this morning, along with all the other new members. We're so grateful, Lord, for the ways that you are adding uh, to our fellowship, to the body of Christ at Redeemer, and we pray for each one that they would grow in grace, that you would help each of us to come alongside of them to be an encouragement, a support, even accountability, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds for your glory. But we do pray for uh, Anna DeBoer as well as Grace and Liz uh, as they are in uh, Guatemala as well as the rest of the uh, Bridge Street students. Uh, we thank you for their work with YWAM. We ask as they are now moved to uh, Guatemala City and uh, just laboring uh, there, just all the different challenges that come uh, with that particular ministry that they would just be faithful in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We thank you for our dear brother Zach Francois as he is uh, bringing his report uh, to us tonight after the evening service. Thank you that we can hear more about uh, his work in Haiti as well as uh, just the way that you are working now, uh, even in this time away from there. Uh, give him the opportunity. Give him what is he stands in need of in visiting a variety of churches in the U.S. to gain the support for this critical work. Lord, be with our Haitian brothers and sisters uh, as they face horrendous and numerous threats. Lord, that your uh, power would subdue evil and let righteousness reign. Lord, we also pray for all of the Christians living in uh, Israel and Palestine, that they would be faithful witnesses in the midst of that chaos as well. We ask you to again subdue all evil and uh, let the righteous prosper. Lord, turn sinners' hearts as only you can to Christ that they might be saved. Lord, we are grateful that we uh, are celebrating uh, other uh, expectant uh, families as well. And we pray for uh, Dan and Katie, uh, for Mike and Kaylin, for Derek and Jess, and for Phil and Marissa in these uh, pregnancies, Lord, that the little ones would be very safe and, and just grow to full maturity and be able to have uh, births without complication and uh, healthy uh, little ones. Lord, we just trust that your grace and mercy would attend each one. We pray for our sister church, New Life Fellowship in Holland. We pray for Pastor Martin Novak and his wife, Benita, and that you would give them um, what they are in need of to be faithful in that ministry. We ask that you would give them uh, continual growth in uh, their uh, ministry to their officers and to the greater body of Christ, and that they would be a lighthouse uh, in the Holland area. 
But we also pray for our uh, presbytery and for the search for a regional home missionary and that your spirit would guide us to exactly the right person that would serve in that particular role. We also pray for those in authority, for our Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, and uh, that as he serves in this uh, highest of courts in this land, uh, Lord, that he recognizes that there is a yet higher court and that he would do so in uh, humbleness and submission to uh, your greater law and uh, that your grace would attend in this difficult task and for each of the justices, Lord, that uh, if it be your will, Lord, that you would bring about uh, just and wise decisions, not ones uh, that are destructive to our country. We also pray for our military personnel. We pray for Eric Bowl and his service in Portland in the ROTC. We pray for uh, Chris Heisinga as he serves in our U.S. Navy. And uh, Zach McMaster, as he continues some training in Colorado, and we just ask your blessing upon each of these men and as well as all the others that are serving to defend our freedom and uh, to protect uh, our country. We pray for the persecuted church in Mexico. We pray for Gabriela. Lord, you know uh, all of the uh, syncretism that goes on uh, within her community and the way that that distracts uh, people from the truth of the gospel. And we ask that you would help her as she seeks to be faithful in preaching a clear uh, gospel to her neighbors and that she would be able to uh, be faithful and that you would help all those believers that are there in that community uh, to stand against uh, the persecution uh, with uh, humility as well as boldness. And uh, you alone can accomplish these things through your people. Lord, though we are weak, uh, you demonstrate your incredible uh, and glorious power, uh, even in the midst of our weakness, so that we know that as we are effective, uh, you are the one that gets and deserves all the glory. And we pray the same for this time in your word, that your spirit would guide us into all truth, uh, that the power of your love would be very clear uh, in our hearts, and that it would work through us uh, to the rest of the planet. We pray in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Please open God's word with me to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13. Uh, as Pastor Jeff mentioned last week, uh, Jesus uh, uses a repeated phrase in the book of John when he said, My hour has not yet come. And as we saw last week, and as we'll see again this morning, Jesus says, My hour has come. Chapter 12 began Passion Week in the book of John. From Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to his resurrection, all the events from chapters 12 through 20 are within the same seven days. Chapters 13 through 17 likely all occur just on Thursday night in the upper room when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper. But before they could eat, Jesus had something to teach them that has impacted the church from that night for the rest of all the ages. Jesus showed them servant love. We will learn this, in this passage that Jesus loves his bride with servant love, and so we must imitate him that Jesus loves his bride with servant love, and we must imitate him. We're going to learn three things about servant love this morning. It is supernatural, it is selfless, and it is submissive. Now, please follow as I read chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. This is 
the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is, what is, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray once more. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have all experienced some awkward moments. Maybe you see a person that you've talked to many, many times, and their name just completely vanishes from your mind. And it's way too late in the relationship to ask them to spell it, B-O-B. Or when you have your older child, keep your place in line because you just have to go get one more thing. And by the time you get back there, all of your stuff has been rung up and the cashier is looking at you and the people in line are looking at you and your child is looking at you. How could you have done this to me? Or when someone always talks about the same subject and even after being politely asked to talk about something else because you can't relate to what they're talking about, they continue. 
Or what about walking through a doorway only to catch your clothes on the doorknob and get slingshotted back? I meant to do that. Yes, we've all had a variety of awkward moments. Maybe you take a sip of water in the restaurant and have this coughing fit because you swallowed it wrong and you're just coughing your brains out during COVID of all times that people are looking at you very, very awkward. Well, we need to appreciate how awkward this situation was for the disciples. Jesus was always doing things in an unconventional way to get their attention and to help them to remember But in this case, he wanted to impress upon their minds the eternal importance of servant love. We learn first of all that servant love is supernatural. Again, verse 1 said, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We see here explicitly that this was the Passover meal they were about to eat and that Jesus was about to transform it into the Lord's Supper. Now, John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allows us to peer into Jesus' mind. I mean, what was Jesus thinking about at this particular moment? The fact that he knew that he was about to be betrayed, that he knew he would suffer incomprehensible torture. He knew he would be rejected in a criminal's death on a Roman cross. He knew he would rise again, and he knew 40 days later he would ascend back to his father. Someone's last words before they die are very, very important Right? Reality has set in, and whatever they're going to say to you in those moments are really important for you to remember. And so this whole farewell discourse in the upper room is one that needs to be viewed in that light. Jesus wanted us to know most of all that his supernatural love was for his bride. It says here, Jesus loved his own who were in the world. Now, this is not a general benevolence towards all of mankind, right? This is a particular love that he has for his chosen people, his particular bride, the church. Pastor Jeff read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul was very clear that this glorious love between husband and wife is mysterious. And he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When we get to chapter 17, we will listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we will hear the cry of an engaged groom who wants his bride to be with him forever. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, in our eternal home. He's looking forward to that day when he comes back and brings us to be with him. And so this covenantal, intimate love that Christ has for his church is the kind of love that we are seeing as Jesus comes and washes the feet of his bride. But as Jesus warned us, the weeds exist among the wheat. 
The visible church does not perfectly represent the invisible church, the chosen people of God. Judas was the most trusted disciple. I mean, he was the treasurer. Jesus washed the feet of the man that was about to send him to unimaginable torture. In this he shows us by only his divine power, his supernatural love, secondly for frenemies. Verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And so that term frenemy was coined back in 1953 by an American columnist who was referencing the Russians. Right? We fought with our comrades to defeat Hitler and then we began right, the Cold War with the USSR over decades. Now perhaps you've experienced the awkwardness of frenemies too. Maybe you've had coworkers who subversively tried to, you know, guarantee they got the promotion by stabbing you in the back. Well, you had to work together with these friends while they were doing that to you and trying to figure out how does this relationship really work. And well, we see here Judas was a tool of Satan. We are given some glimpses throughout the gospel of Judas's greed, knowing that he would take from the purse for himself, of his jealousy and his faked moral outrage when all of the nard was poured on Jesus' feet. Though Jesus knew this frenemy, Judas, was about to betray him, Jesus loved him with a supernatural love a servant love. And the amazing thing, the way John writes this gospel, when you look at verses 2 and 3, it's the very same sentence, right? John emphasizes the supernatural nature of servant love because the only love that can love our enemies is thirdly, a love that is from God, right? It's a love for his bride, a love for his frenemies, a love that comes from God. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus understood that his identity was not rooted in what people thought of him. As the greatest evangelist ever, people still rejected him. Even his own follower that was with him for three years, Judas. As the only perfect person to ever live, he was still unjustly arrested and crucified. I want you to see the beautiful parallels in Scripture. One of them being the Father's love for the Son when he is facing his most difficult tasks. And so right before Jesus faced the devil the first time, right, right before he went into the wilderness, we hear the voice call out from heaven in Matthew chapter 3, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so in a similar way, right here, just before Jesus faces the worst that the devil has in his scheming, he is reassured about his identity. He had come from God. And he was returning to God. As horrific as his sacrifice would be, it would 
end. And he would rise again in victory and ascend back to his father. In the supernatural strength of his father's love and in the promises that he possessed all authority in all things, from that place of strength, he became the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 53 for your sins and for mine. Do you believe that you are a beloved child of God? Well, if you have indeed turned away from your sins and put all of your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to reconcile you to God, you have to also know that he adopts you as his own child. You see, by faith we are united to Christ, and in that union we become adopted children of God. And so we get to receive the exact same encouragement that Jesus received. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, God says. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, actually delights in you? We have to be reminded of that repeatedly. We are not loved because we're valuable. We are valuable because we are loved. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, the whole reason Jesus came was to rescue his bride whom he loves and whom he washes from all our sin. But remember God's infinitely generous promise that comes to us in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Once again, do you see the parallel connection back to what Jesus was experiencing in that moment? These glorious parallels of our union with Christ. Though we in this world face enemies and frenemies, our identity is rooted in Christ, and so we can face whoever God places against us. We have been created by God, born by Christ, born of Christ, and in eternity He will place in our hands all things. That's a position of strength so that we don't have to feel the need to be selfish because we already possess it all. Unfortunately, our nature is to be selfish. But Jesus shows us that servant love is not only supernatural, it is also selfless. Verse 4 says, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Remember when I said this is an awkward moment for the disciples? Yeah, that's this part. Now, when you think about the context, it's really important to understand what's going on here for us to really appreciate how awkward it really was. You see, 
Um, Jesus and his disciples are about to enjoy this meal, this Passover meal, in a borrowed room. And that's very important because there's no host, right, to perform the normal hospitality that would exist in someone's home. And so one of the regular services was washing the feet of everyone because they, what do they do? They walk around all the time in sandals on dusty streets shared by animals. You get the picture. Now, I am someone who likes to have clean feet before I put them under my bed covers. And when I was on a surf trip to Panama, we were walking in sandals on dusty roads all the time. And so uh, I always clean my feet before putting them into the sleeping bag. But uh, even if I had just taken a shower, like just getting from wherever that was to where we were sleeping, still, you know, they could get dirty. So, you know, I imagine laying on the mat there with Jesus for a nice meal that we're about to have. And I just, I really don't want to be smelling my neighbor's donkey droppings on my feet or anybody else's feet, right? It's just not that pleasant uh, of an experience. And so Jesus shows us, first of all, that servant love humbly kneels. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I racked my brain trying to come up with some type of modern-day parallel to help us just try to get what they were feeling in that particular moment because... Right, Most of us clean our own feet. It's not a normal thing we do when we go to each other's houses. So how is this going to work? Well, here it goes. Don't get your hopes up. We like having people over for dinner. And when we do, we, like perhaps like you, scurry about trying to clean up everything. You know, because people tripping over your shoes or seeing dirty toilets, it just doesn't feel quite as welcoming. And so I want you to imagine it's your house and you're going to have somebody over for dinner. Let's say it's your boss or some other dignitary that is coming for dinner. Um, How would you feel if your boss goes into the bathroom and then comes out and says, do you have any cleaning products? Curious, I'd rather embarrassed, you say yes. He unbuttons his shirt. (laughs) Yes, very, very awkward. He hangs the shirt over the towel bar, sprays in toilet bowl cleaner, begins brushing the bowl. Now, he doesn't just do a few swishes. I mean, he really scrubs that thing. He then takes a rag and gets into all the crevices, being a home of all boys, and he really scrubs and gets that toilet looking brand new. Ashamed and possibly even a bit insulted, you sheepishly thank him. But he then goes on to the next bathroom, and you're thinking, oh, he is not going into our master bathroom. Why? Is it dirty? Yes. Well, then it needs cleansing. You see, Jesus came to wash away the dirt of our sin, but that's not the only thing he did. He also came to clothe us in his perfect life so that he covers our shame. It's not just guilt. It's also the shame that comes with it. We have real needs that are far beyond dirty feet or toilets. And so Jesus' selfless servant love, secondly, helps real needs. First, it humbly kneels, and second, helps real needs. And those are spiritual and physical, right? One of the most important needs the disciples had was to show them their own hearts, 
Right? Jesus, therefore, shows them their spiritual needs. Now, in the first century Judaism, right, fishwashing was very rarely ever done by Jewish men. Right? It was left to the lowest servant, a woman, a child, most likely a Gentile. And so because they borrowed the room, they had to provide their own servant to wash feet. And this means one of them would have to identify as the lowest servant, and nobody volunteered. The Gospel of Luke reveals what the disciples were actually thinking about. They were concerned with who was going to be the greatest, not who was going to be the lowest. At exactly the same time, Luke says in Luke 22, a dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They were probably thinking Jesus was about to restore the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of David. The kingdom of their rule over all the earth. And they wanted to be sitting right next to him, right on top. The disciples needed to admit their lack of humility and their lack of love in their unwillingness to wash one another's feet. And we also need to admit that same issue in our own lives. We have a natural inner desire to be served rather than to serve. But Jesus took on the identity of the lowest servant to their horror and embarrassment. The disciples had a very real spiritual need for a Savior who would wash away that selfishness and to cover their shame. But we can't forget that their feet were actually dirty. They also had physical needs. Peter says in chapter verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. (laughs) You got to love Peter. Always sticking his dirty foot in his mouth. He goes from one extreme to the other just to impress Jesus that he had the right answer. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Jesus said, Dirty feet need cleaning. But he also points out that this is transforming into a metaphor of spiritual cleaning of their entire persons. Now, some people have taken these verses as sacramental, right? We only affirm two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, you may have seen foot washings as a symbol at some weddings, right? Sometimes the groom will wash the feet of his bride in commemoration of Jesus washing the feet of his bride, right? Saying that's what they're planning to do as a symbol, personal preference, not a mandate for wedding ceremonies, right? But wonderful image. Now, we are commanded specifically here to look for ways that we can imitate Jesus in selfless servant love to the needs that sinners have, both physical and spiritual. That is the point. And Jesus continues to serve his church even today 
through us. And that's where we learn lastly that he serves his church through submissive love. First of all, supernatural love. Second, selfless. And third, submissive. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. All authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus. He knew that he had come from God and that he was going to, back to the Father. And so with all of that authority, he humbly commands his followers to demonstrate supernatural, selfless, submissive love as a servant love by actually doing it. This is the Christian's role. It's what we're supposed to do in any and all circumstances in our lives is to assume the position of the lowest servant to serve one another's real needs. And so Jesus calls us, first of all, to respond by imitation. Verse 15 says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus targeted the disciples' hearts. He knew what was in their minds. He knew they were focused on being the greatest disciple. He wanted them to see greatness only comes by faith because only God is great and only God can give it. Greatness does not come by seeking a name for yourself. Now, here's the weird thing. Like, 2,000 years later, we know this commandment, right? We've heard this story before. We know what it's about. And so what do our twisted minds do? Now we want to be known as the lowest servant. How does that work? We're still seeking glory for ourselves. Right? And so it's amazing how much we need him to work in our hearts to not seek glory for our name, but to seek it for his name, not knowing what our left hand, not telling our left hand what our right hand is doing. Jesus wants us to lastly recognize imposters. Verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, when I say recognize imposters, what I'm not saying is, right, we should not be just going around and searching out in the church who are the imposters and let's get rid of them, right? Jesus said, no, don't try to pull up the weeds, because you're going to pull up the wheat at the same time that you're trying to weed out the weeds. Not your job, God's job. The only thing we can do is look for the imposter right here in our own hearts. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it for self or am I doing it for Jesus? And one of the ways that we can tell how we're treating those whom God has sent. Jesus said in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so how we treat those whom God has sent shows us 
what our priorities are. Now, this is not just referring to pastors and missionaries. This is referring to every believer because all of us are sent on the mission to make disciples of all nations. And so how we treat one another, how we love one another and serve one another or stab each other in the back, whatever it is, that's what we're showing is our priority. It's either self or it's Jesus. And so we have to stop looking to other people for the answers and recognize our sinful hearts are only ever going to find satisfaction in the fact that our Savior delights to serve us. And he does so even still through imperfect sinners like us as we care for the needs of one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that as we come to your table, it is such a powerful reminder of the time you were at the table with your disciples and that you are still serving the needs of your people. You know that we are weak. You know that we need tangible signs reminding our bodies at the same time that we remind our souls of who you are and that by faith you nourish our souls with real grace real faith, real love to make us more like yourself. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts as we come to this table so that you are the one who gets all of the glory. We pray it in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. We have heard about the love of Jesus. He is our living hope. Let us stand and sing his praise.
Well, we come now to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the table of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, but the table of the Lord. And we are enjoying this Lord's Supper because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, commemorated this, inaugurated it for us so that we would know his love. And he faithfully entrusted it to his apostles who faithfully entrusted it to their disciples and their disciples all the way down through the millennia from their hands to mine, mine to your elders and your elders in to yours. This is the words of institution from Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, as we've already seen before serving communion, Jesus took the form of the lowest servant to wash his disciples' feet. He demonstrated that he is the suffering servant that was prophesied, the one who would live the perfect life that we failed to live, the one that would die the death that our sins deserve upon that cross, and the one that would rise again as we have just sung, the glorious victory. Well, it is that victorious Jesus who is in heaven at this time hosting this meal for us. It is his offer for sinners to come to this table. Now, this is a family meal, right? It's for those who have indeed turned away from their sins and put their trust in that Savior, Jesus Christ, and have been adopted as his children. Those are the ones that he calls to this table. And so if you have not made that commitment, if you have not turned from Christ, then he warns us to not partake of this particular meal, lest we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. And that would also apply to the children of the church who have not made public profession of faith. We greatly look forward to the day when you do. And we can celebrate the fact that you come to the table with us knowing what the bread means, what the cup means, and what it means to receive Jesus by faith. But if you are a baptized, professing, communicant member in good standing in the church of Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the Lord's table. This is a table for sinners who are believing and who are rejoicing in the grace that is ours in Christ. And so let us go to him in prayer and see these elements set apart. Lord Jesus, we praise you for welcoming us to your table. We are amazed that you would lay down your life for sinners like us. Let us meditate upon the word of God as we consider what this means. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without 
sin. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by death, much more we were reconciled shall we be saved by his life. It was his body broken, not yours. Let us rejoice by faith with thanks. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. But not in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and to the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. blood of Jesus poured out for the remission of all our sins. Let us rejoice. Lord Jesus, as we consider all that you have done, it is beyond our full comprehension and so we need 
your spirit to guide us, to know what it is to be served by a God who created all things, became a creature in human form, washed his disciples' dirty feet, and washed us clean by his own blood. Lord, we are in awe of the kind of love that is unparalleled in all the universe and in any story that's ever been told. And this true, amazing story is our reality by faith in Jesus. And we praise you for the gift of that love. Help us to overflow with the spring of your love and share it with all those in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let us stand now for the benediction. We're going to do the benediction before we do the doxology, but that's a great intro to the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. And then we rejoice in the doxology. Thank you.